There's a song by Billie Holiday in which she sings, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. We all want the unconditional love and happiness which heaven seems to represent, but we don't really want to surrender what is in the way our agenda for ourselves, our personal version of reality, our story, our suffering, our opinions, just to name a few. All that keeps us separate, all that we invest with so much reality but in truth is lacking in any solidity or permanence. We don't really trust when we come to practice that by letting go we will find the love, the happiness, and the peace that we want. And a big part of practice is about learning to trust, learning to trust that when we do let go, whether we let go a little or a lot, that this will lead not into some great gaping black abyss of fear and chaos, but actually will lead to greater love happiness and peace, a greater sense of harmony with all of life. Zen master Sasaki Roshi wrote, we think that this self of ours is separate from the world. This self is always thinking, how can I become one with the world? How can I be not left out of the world? But in reality, the world will never leave you out. It is always including you. It's only because you get attached to the personal fixed self that you start worrying about being left out. When you really know how to get along with the world, coming to a truly friendly relationship with this world, then you will never worry about being left out. But when you are attached to a fixed individual self, then you will forever be in a state of insecurity, worrying that you will be abandoned by everybody. Last week in the newspaper, there was um, a headline, actually. I was in Washington, D.C., and this was on the front page of the Washington Post, competing with news of White House and Congress, and it's the headline which says, New State of Matter Heralded as Physics Holy Grail. They made some big discovery just a month ago about uh, a theory that actually Einstein had that nobody had ever been able to prove. Then finally they proved it, and it's called the Holy Grail of Physics. And I am not a scientist, so this is a vast oversimplification, but basically what, what they did was they took 2,000 atoms and intermingled them, or 2,000 atoms, they slowed down to a state of no motion. And once they did that, these atoms intermingled and became a new state of matter what they called one amalgamated superatom. This had never been seen before. It's interesting to me that 
When the atoms got still enough, they intermingled. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's scientifically correct, but it seems metaphorically correct to say that when we abide in calmness, our atoms begin to settle. We come to know deeply on a cellular level our interconnectedness. We know something deeply which cannot be learned when we're rushing around, moved by greed, aversion, or distractedness. As we practice, we learn to trust in this letting go more and more, more than in the holding on, not necessarily with huge breakthroughs, but gently and slowly in silence and in stillness, learning to come to rest in awareness itself, to rest in the seeing, finding as we do more and more confidence in this free state of being. Discovering finally that in letting go, we are held in a vast and boundless love. What Nagarjuna calls, called the love that slays samsara. I love that phrase, the love that slays samsara. The awakened say, love is not impeded by thoughts of selves and things. It is infinitely empty. So practice with a mind soaked in compassion. The awakened who are compassion forever rest in love. Nagarjuna. This is a path of wisdom and compassion, like the two wings of a bird. Both are necessary qualities of practice and awakening. Now, the word compassion is used a lot and, and unfortunately often not really well understood. It can be confusing. The word love is often even more confusing. So as the Dalai Lama has said, better to speak about kindness. Everybody knows what kindness is. Kindness is an easy, easier concept, perhaps, for our minds to um, receive than these big words like compassion and love. So we begin, we begin in our practice, we begin with connecting with this idea of kindness. And so we can ask ourselves, what does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to be kind to ourselves and to others? Does it mean seeking comfort and security in our lives? Does it mean getting everything we want, satisfying all of our desires, being able to distance ourselves from anything unpleasant, to never take risks? What does it mean to be kind? You know, instead of encouraging you to pay attention here over and over and over again, what if we told you, you know, well, just take a break whenever it gets a little rough. You know, if you feel a little discouraged or depressed, why don't you just run in the kitchen, get a little snack, or, <laughs> you know, go down to the ice cream store, that'll cheer you up, or, 
you know, if it really gets bad, go out to the movies. Or, you know, maybe we'll have a video night here in the meditation hall. And we'll get popcorn out and everybody will feel good. And, you know, you may think not a bad idea. Be good to yourself. How many times have we heard, oh, be, have the piece of cake, be good to yourself. <laughs> well, is this kind, really? This is often what passes for kindness in our culture. Taking it easy, distracting ourselves from anything unpleasant, indulging in fantasy, not, taking too, not making too much effort. We might strain ourselves. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for enjoyment of these things in our lives. I happen to love the movies myself. But is this really kindness in the sense that we're talking about here? From the point of view of practice, it's not really. Why is that? because it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't lead to the end of suffering. It doesn't increase our sense of freedom and possibility. It gives perhaps momentary comfort and distraction, but it doesn't really lead to greater wakefulness or, or put us in touch with the true and abiding source of our inner happiness and peace. From the point of view of practice, from what we're doing here, to be really kind to ourselves means untying the knots of suffering, releasing ourselves from the bondage of greed, of hatred, and ignorance. So I say this because I think it's important to know this deeply for oneself, so that you see that what is being asked of you here is not an exercise in masochism or self-deprivation, but is actually a skillful use of a form called insight meditation that constantly confronts us with the walls of our prison, with the strengths and stubbornness of our habits and our distractedness. In seeing this over and over and over again, as you all are seeing, there may be discomfort, disorientation. One of the elder teachers here, Achan Shah, said, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. (laughs) The suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So kindness is a foundation of our practice. We are not taking up the cultivation of kindness or the reflection on kindness as another spiritual should. You know, I should be kind. I should be compassionate. Another thing to beat ourselves up about. I must be kind or I'm a worthless person. The minute we invest kindness with a should, it disappears. 
So please don't take what I'm saying as another spiritual should. To be kind to ourselves is to really untangle the knots of our suffering. This is the ultimate act of kindness. And practice is a way of freeing ourselves, which has kindness as its very basis. Last night, Christina mentioned happiness and generosity as two of the foundations out of which insight arises. Loving kindness, happiness, and generosity cannot be separated. When we are kind, we are happy. When we are happy, we are kind. Kindness is generosity itself. As we practice, we become more attuned to this quality of loving kindness. We begin to recognize it more readily as an inherent aspect of this way of practice. We bump into it more and more often. The two main ways we do this are what I wish to address tonight. The first being through the cultivation of a non-judging and allowing awareness, which we bring to all aspects of our experience. The second being through the conscious cultivation of loving intention in our practice and in our lives, what is sometimes called meta-practice. You may have seen this word meta out on the front of the building. It's a Pali word, the Pali language. It means loving kindness. So first I'd like to talk about what the Buddha discovered in his practice, about what it means to be genuinely kind and loving. The Buddha discovered something which is a a truth for all of us to take to heart. He discovered what is called the middle way. The middle way between the extremes of passionate, impulsive love and the extreme of austere detachment and denial of feeling. He discovered this through his own life experience and through his practice. As a young prince, then called Siddhartha, the Buddha grew up in a very wealthy family where his every need and whim were provided for. It was an atmosphere of great privilege and indulgence. But something in him wanted to know more about life. And when he finally left the palace in search of the truth, he turned to another extreme. From a life of indulgence, he turned to a life of asceticism and self-denial as a wandering mendicant, a form that was common in his culture. So for six years, he practiced very rigorous austerities, finally almost starving himself to death. Sometimes you see these statues of the Buddha where his ribs are showing. And he did this until one day he realized that this way of life was leading him no closer to the truth than his former life of material wealth and pleasure. So he took some food and began to regain his strength. And with more energy, he resolved to discover for himself a way out of suffering. 
He saw very clearly that going to extremes in any form was not the way, neither the extremes of physical comfort or asceticism, nor the extremes of indulgence or repression, nor the extremes of various philosophical doctrines. He saw and intuited the middle way between all extremes, physical, emotional, and philosophical. In this way, he learned to walk a path of balance and freedom from all extremes, neither swayed by passionate attachment for, nor caught in aversive detachment from the world. His way of loving people was by teaching them how to free themselves from suffering. His love and his wisdom continue to touch our lives today. Opening to our suffering with mindfulness, with awareness, is learning to love ourselves. It is learning to love ourselves without any illusions. Often the kind of love we entertain is love based on illusion, the fulfillment of fantasy. The kind of love we learn as we practice is very sober, very clear-eyed, and very connected to the truth of the way things are. It's actually an expression of this middle way discovered by the Buddha. Now, there is no absolute middle way, you know, kind of carved out, and all we need to do is find it and walk the path. No, we all have to discover the middle way between attachment and detachment, between clinging and aversion for ourselves. It is not obvious and no one else can really tell us how to do it at any given moment. It takes deep listening and a great deal of honesty with ourselves. At times only we know when we're being indulgent or when we are motivated by aversion, or when we are in denial. But out of this deep listening and honesty with ourselves, we find our own middle way. The key to walking this middle path is mindfulness, bringing moment-to-moment attention to the changing conditions of our minds and bodies. In its essence, this mind of ours is like the open expanse of the sky through which you could say the clouds of anger and passion and fear pass. When the mind is full of desire or aversion or fear, it becomes clouded, contracted, and dark. Through being aware of this desire, aversion, or fear as they arise, we begin, they begin to loosen their hold on us just by shining the light of our awareness on them. In being mindful of these states, we become less identified with them. More space is created in the mind. The, the clouds themselves become less dense, more free to move and the inherent qualities of our being begin to shine through. Our radiant, loving being shines through. 
Another way to say this is that our desires and fears and anger are a kind of limiting force in the mind. They color the way we see the world. They determine how we actually perceive any given situation. You know, when the mind is filled with desire, what do we see? There's an old saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are the saint's pockets. This is the mind of greed. In just the same way, we bring certain expectations and assumptions into many situations in our lives. And these often limit what we can see as the actual potential of the situation. We only see what is possible through the lens of our conditioning. For example, the belief, very common sometimes in meditators, that I'm not good enough, or I am unworthy, or I'm not able to do this, is often a limitation on our sense of what is actually possible in meditation. But when we can see this for what it is, just a mind state, not a final conclusion about ourselves or reality, just an impermanent mind state. And when we can let go even a little, we create more space in the mind and begin to free ourselves from these habitual and limiting reactions we open to a fuller sense of what is possible for ourselves. This is an act of love and kindness for ourselves. This is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Some of you know this. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I am lost helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. (laughs) But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in it. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) We learn as we go. This is an act of kindness to ourselves. Another way in which we are cultivating kindness in our practice has to do with the nature of awareness itself. Bringing moment-to-moment mindfulness to our experience is an act of kindness. I'd like to read you a passage from uh, the Platform Sutra of the sixth Zen Patriarch. He says, Good friends, 
My teachings of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and kindness are alike. Be careful not to say that meditation gives rise to kindness or that kindness gives rise to meditation or that meditation and kindness are different from each other. He's telling us that awareness and kindness are inherently the same. Now, if we don't experience that in our practice, it may be that the awareness we bring to meditation is colored by judgment or aversion. Awareness and judgment are completely different. We need to see that very clearly in our experience. Judgment, we all know the judging mind is evaluative, critical, condemning, comparing. Awareness, on the other hand, is completely neutral. Awareness is neutral. Like a mirror, it simply reflects what is in front of it. Awareness has no preferences, no likes and dislikes. It simply reflects, it shows us the truth of things, of our experience. Now another translation, a later translation of this same sutra substitutes the word wisdom for the word kindness. So I'd like to read it again with that word used. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and wisdom as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and wisdom are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of wisdom. Wisdom itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then wisdom exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and wisdom are alike. Be careful not to say that meditation gives rise to wisdom or that wisdom gives rise to meditation or that meditation and wisdom are different from each other. Isn't that interesting? That awareness has inherently in it both of these qualities, the qualities of kindness and the quality of wisdom. Now when we use the word wisdom in this sense, it's not referring to knowledge, but rather a quality of non-identification with our experience. The absence of clinging or dwelling in the mind. In every moment of pure awareness, we are freeing ourselves from identification with the content of our experience. We are free from dwelling. We are free from clinging. We are learning to rest in kindness and non-dwelling. 
Awareness is kindness and wisdom, spaciousness and non-identification. This is love, the love which slays samsara, which cuts through all our tendencies to grasp or reject or deny. Now, this is not something you have to think about or, you know, get a grip on and sort of think about it all as you're practicing or figure it out. Not at all. All you have to do is to practice bringing your attention into the present, just as we have been encouraging over and over and over again. Simply shining the light of your awareness on whatever is presenting itself. Awareness does the work. Awareness has these qualities of kindness and wisdom. The more we are able to rest in awareness itself, the more we are cultivating and coming closer in touch with these qualities of wisdom, non-identification, non-dwelling, and kindness, openness, spaciousness. So kindness is really inherent in what we are doing here. Now the second main way we work with the cultivation of loving kindness in our practice is through this practice of metta, this this word that's on the building out here. That's the Pali word for loving kindness. And it has two root meanings, one meaning being gentle, and the other meaning being friend. So that to be kind means to be a gentle friend. Gentle in the sense that it's like the rain that falls everywhere and nourishes everything without discrimination. Friend, like the friend who sticks with us through all the ups and downs of good fortune, bad fortune, success and failure, joy and sorrow, the friend we can count on no matter what. To be kind in the sense of being a gentle friend has both the quality of non-discrimination, of seeing all beings as equally deserving of kindness, and this includes ourselves, and unconditionality, that being kind is not dependent on someone pleasing us or giving us what we want. And this includes being kind to ourselves, even when we make mistakes, when we don't live up to our ideals for ourselves. So in practicing loving kindness, we are learning to be a gentle friend to ourselves and to all beings, even to those whom we find difficult. In the practice of loving kindness, if you do it um, as a practice on retreat, We start by extending loving-kindness to the easy people in our lives, the people that um, have been very kind to us. And then we go to a friend, and then we go to a neutral person, and then finally we practice on what is traditionally called the enemy, the person in our lives whom we feel to be very difficult for some reason. So we take on progressive... Um, progressively more difficult people 
And we use that as a way to cultivate this quality of kindness. Now this does not mean in cultivating this that we are cultivating a kind of passivity or codependence in our being so that we will be overrun in our lives by the difficult people. This does not mean that we can't create clear boundaries for ourselves in our lives about what is and what is not acceptable. But it also means that we keep our hearts open even with those whom we find difficult. To me, the Dalai Lama is a beautiful example of this quality of kindness. Especially when you hear him speak about the Chinese, the people who came and took over Tibet and have been very difficult for the Tibetan people to deal with. He calls the Chinese, my friends, the enemy Chinese. (laughs) And in that he is acknowledging that there is difficulty, but he refuses to allow them not to be friends. He still is determined to keep them in his heart. Another exemplary of this attitude is the Vietnamese monk, Thich Nhat Hanh. I heard him speak several years ago in Berkeley. It was during the uh, desert war. And there were some peace demonstrations happening in Berkeley at that time while we were bombing Iraq. And he was, Thich Nhat Hanh was um, praising the peace marchers and encouraging them in their desire to make peace. But he said, in order to really complete your peacemaking, you need to go one step further. And that one step further is, he said, I would, I would encourage you all to go home tonight and write a love letter to George Bush. George Bush was the president at that time, meaning that In order to really make peace in this world, we can't throw anybody out of our heart, not even those whom we don't agree with. Shantideva tells us, foes are as unlimited as space. They cannot possibly all be overcome. Yet if you just overcome the thought of hatred, that will be equal to overcoming all foes. So the practice of loving-kindness is a very simple and direct way for us to begin to connect with this quality of unconditional love for all beings, including ourselves. It's a way of overcoming our tendency to divide the world into right and wrong, good and bad, like and dislike. The practice of loving-kindness involves cultivating loving intention in the mind in a variety of situations and for a variety of people. The power of doing this is very great. The power of intentionally creating love in the mind. It moves us in ways that may be surprising to us. I remember the first time I practiced, I did this practice intensively 
Um, it was some years ago here at IMS in the autumn, and I had been doing it for about a month, I think, and there was deer hunting season suddenly arrived, and as we were all sitting here in the hall, you could hear the, you know, the rifles going off, the gunshots going off in the woods, and of course, having been practicing loving-kindness for some weeks, I was not surprised at all to find myself sending loving, kind thoughts to the deer, but I was quite surprised to find myself equally sending loving thoughts to the hunters. It by then had become somewhat of an automatic response to be less discriminating in my reaction. I could feel loving kindness for the hunters. I was training my mind to incline towards empathy and concern for all beings. And it's a very powerful thing to experience that in ourselves. I believe that in part this happens in metta practice because the actual truth of our existence is that we are all completely interconnected. The belief in separation is an illusion, having no inherent reality. A beautiful expression of this was written by Susan Griffin in Sharon Salzberg's book on loving-kindness, which I highly recommend to those of you who are not familiar with it. Susan writes of our unity from a book she wrote called Woman and Nature. She says, We say that you cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that everything is moving, and we are part of this motion, that the soil is moving, that the water is moving. We say that the earth draws water to her from the clouds. We say the rainfall parts on each side of the mountain like the parting of our hair and that the shape of the mountain tells where the water has passed. We say this water washes the soil from the hillsides, that the rivers carry sediment, that rain, when it splashes, carries small particles, that the soil itself flows with water and streams underground. We say that water is taken up into the roots of plants, into stems, that it washes down hills into rivers, that these rivers flow to the sea, that from the sea and the sunlight this water rises to the sky. This water is carried into clouds and comes back as rain, comes back as fog, comes back as dew, as wetness in the air. We say everything comes back. We say, look how the water flows from this place and returns as rainfall. Everything returns, we say, and one thing follows another. There are limits, we say, on what can be done, and everything moves. We are all a part of this motion, we say, and the way of the river is sacred, and this grove of trees is sacred. And we ourselves, we tell you, are sacred.
The Buddha said there are two kinds of rare beings, those who are kind and those who can receive kindness. In doing metta practice, we are practicing both, both extending kindness and also opening ourselves to receive kindness and love. They're both purification practices, both sides, because they both show us where we have created walls of separation and fear and resentment. The practice of receiving is a whole practice in itself. But opening ourselves to receive can be a very transforming experience. And it has much less to do with the grandeur and generosity or worth of what is offered as it does to, has to do with our attitude of mind and heart. I want to read you something that I received last winter, and I won't tell you I won't tell you who wrote it, but I want to read you this thank you note, actually. It says, Thank you doesn't seem a big, big enough term to really express how I feel. Your generosity is not something I take lightly. The gift of belonging to our community is one that I hold in high esteem. All of the extras that are afforded me, your smiles, the greetings, the feeling of belonging to a family, brings me warmth during the coldest mornings knowing that each and every one of you had taken the time to think of me is a gift that I treasure beyond worth. So even though thank you is a little term, please know that I'm sending it to you in the biggest way. Wishing you and yours only the best and the brightest new year. This was from our garbage man. Got to be one of the happiest garbage men in the world. (laughs) It really touched my heart. (laughs) Loving kindness is the result of what we do with our minds, not the result of fortunate circumstances or material abundance. Viktor Frankl writes about being in the concentration camps, We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men and women who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of one's freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. We can train our hearts to incline toward generosity and loving kindness. This is possible for all of us. Or we can allow our habits of aversion, condemnation, fear, and distractedness to run us. It is our choice. The poet John Donne said, I will choose to say yes to love as often as I can. What a beautiful commitment. Kindness is always an option. Love is our true nature. In saying yes to love, we are saying yes 
to the truth of who we are. The Buddha said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person will not be found. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. Can we take that in? Can we open to that? We are, in our suffering, in our contractedness, like parched soil awaiting the gentle and nourishing rain of loving-kindness. And we need not go so far to find this love that we all long for, that we seek. I hope I have conveyed tonight how close it is, how accessible, that it is the foundation of what we are doing here. It is here with us in this room, closer than our breath, in awareness itself, in the loving intention of our heart to free ourselves from suffering, to awaken and be free. So let's sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 25, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.